Hi, my name is Wani Sander. I'm a senior associate at CM Murray, and today I'm joined on our CM Murray podcast by my colleague Emma Bartlett, a partner at CM Murray, and we are absolutely thrilled to have the amazing Hustara Begum, who is a city lawyer turned journalist turned career management specialist uh, and skills trainer. Um, she's a completely relentless, powerful um, DNI advocate, and she's joining us on this podcast to celebrate and raise awareness of the UN International Day of Persons with Disabilities. So this is a day that was started back in 1992, and it aims to promote the rights and well-being of people with disabilities in all spheres of society and development. And this year's theme is building back better, having disability be more inclusive, accessible and sustainable in a post-COVID-19 world. So on this podcast, we wanted to discuss and raise the profile of this important day and how employers, business leaders, senior managers can all help better recruit and support and promote more people with disabilities um, in the workplace. So without further ado, Hisnara, for those who may not know you yet, can you just tell us a little bit about your legal background and, and how you think your career journey was impacted by your disability? Sure, for, of course. Firstly, thank you very much for welcoming me to participate in this um, recording. Hello, everyone. My background when it comes to my CV is actually pretty vanilla in terms of the early stages of my career. So I studied law at Warwick and then picked up a training contract in the penultimate year of my degree and then joined um, Linklaters as a trainee solicitor where I spent three years after qualifying in their corporate team. Now the reason why that bit sounds a bit boring but I guess the reason I've been invited to join this podcast is my sort of achievement has been was sort of affected I guess by the fact that at the age of nine, I was diagnosed with very, very severe rheumatoid arthritis, which affected my sort of mobility. And I spent most of my childhood in and out of hospital, which meant disruptive schooling, um, missed exams, etc. But I managed by, I don't know how, but I managed to sort of pass everything and uh, got into Warwick. And then the rest, as they say, is history because it's that conveyor belt of fact schemes, training contracts, applications, law school, and then a training contract. Mm. And how did you think your disability changed what that journey would look like for you, know, you compared to you know, somebody else? Really dramatically, because one thing that really jumps out, which is now illegal, is when I was applying for my degree place, I had a handful of universities, including one that I won't mention, that actually rejected me, not because of my lack of academic achievement, but simply because their law library wasn't accessible. And they actually openly admitted to that, which obviously, you know, sounds very shocking now, but that was yeah. unfortunately the norm. You know, we had nothing protecting us against discrimination at that level. Wow, yeah, that, that is shocking. I'm sure you'd agree, Emma. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Disability Discrimination Act came into force in 1995. I remember it well. It's now been instilled in the Equality Act and part of that obligation is on physical features of a building. They have to allow people with physical disabilities to be able to access that place. But until then, there really wasn't anything. And even when that law came into being, it took a long time for buildings to be changed in a lot of areas. 
that sort of physical feature which would stop people with certain disabilities getting into their offices shouldn't be an issue in the current climate. Yeah, I, I agree. And so one important issue, I think, in, in relation to this year's theme of building back better is, is what employers could actually do to, to stop the, the sorts of um, experiences, I guess, that you had. And as we have just spoken about, there's been some developments in the law in that respect. But there are possibly other things that, that employers should be thinking about to make the playing field more level for people with um, physical disabilities and, and what sort of things would you like to see Hisnara? I think having honest conversations is really important because the difficulty I have talking about disability is that it's so broad there are so many ways it manifests itself you know you've got hidden disabilities you've got disabilities like mine which are a combination of you know limited physical sort of activity that i can get involved in plus the fact that my physical sort of impairment was on the back of a chronic disease which is really quite serious and affects my immune system um and then obviously you've got all things related to mental well-being as well so the um, what is covered within disability is so, so broad. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. And that's why these conversations are so important. And I think this is where Linkmaters, and they're going to thank me for this, um, even though this isn't a Linkmaters podcast, were ahead <laughs> of the curve in that after they invited me in to do the assessment days for getting a training contract offer with them, they actually sat me right down and said, look, we think you're great. We want to offer you a training contract, but we have reservations. And they asked me quite candidly, what is it can we do for you that would enable you to successfully complete a training contract at our firm? And although it sounds a bit sort of intrusive and I'm not sure all people with disabilities will react so positively to that question, I, I felt that it was almost a relief that they were quite prepared to have that conversation with me and offer solutions in collaboration with me rather than telling me what I can't and cannot do. So that conversation around how can we help is really important. I think employers also need to be more open-minded about disability in the first place because mm -hmm. I think one pushback when recruiting people with disabilities, I think, and and I've seen this myself with my own personal sort of career, is the worry that employers have about time away from work due to poor health, whether that's you know, a hospital appointment or time off sick. And again, this is where you need to differentiate between disabilities that are caused on the back of a chronic illness or a long-term health condition versus say like my husband, who is a paraplegic, he's in touch with perfectly good health. He just happens to around in a wheelchair. I think it's fantastic to hear when an, an employer has got it right and principally what you're talking about there is an employer understanding and probably Linklater's case right at the start of the obligation arising but understanding that employers have an obligation to make reasonable adjustments to allow employees or individuals who have physical or mental disabilities to be able to achieve in the workplace and the adjustments are there intended to mitigate any negative consequences and to put disabled individuals on a level playing field with their colleagues. 
You're absolutely right that no one disability is necessarily the same. And even with individuals with the same disability, they're not always going to have the same negative consequences of that disability. So they may need different adjustments. So very much the starting point has to be asking the employee what they think would assist them before the employer can then decide whether or not it's reasonable to meet that request for an adjustment. And in certain circumstances, the employer may benefit from getting advice from medical advisors as to what adjustments might be reasonable to assist that person in the workplace. There are certainly, you mentioned there, hidden disabilities. So where we get to talk about people who are neurodiverse, for example, who really don't consider themselves to be disabled, not least in the context of the Equality Act, but nevertheless may have the need for some adjustments to be made to maximise their skill set in the workplace. And part of parcel, part and parcel of that is just for the employer to go and speak to them and encourage them to discuss with them what would be really helpful. By neurodiverse, we mean individuals who may have, for example, autism or Asperger's, dyslexia, ADHD. Um, and there are experts who can assist employers in understanding what types of adjustments such neurodiverse individuals might welcome in order to be their best selves in the workplace. Can I mention some of the adjustments that Linklate has made for me, just to reassure employers that they don't necessarily have to be a big deal. Hmm. So one thing that they alerted me to was how big their building is. And I use a wheelchair for long distances, typically therefore not indoors. You know, it's something I use to get out, of, get out and about outdoors. But Linklate has actually suggested to me, are you going to be okay wandering around a very big building on multiple levels? Especially because as a lawyer, you'll have lots of files and they're quite big, they're quite heavy. Mm -hmm. So they were the ones who suggested that I might want to get an electric wheelchair, you know, just to whiz around the building. And they funded that, which sounds extremely reasonable for a size, you know, a firm of that size and ilk. They said, you know, we have no you know, concerns about using taxis for you to get out and about to meetings. Everyone else does that anyway. So frankly, you're no special um, case. And then the other one they offered me was a parking space that I was able to drive to work. So these things aren't huge. Um, and I think that there's a risk that employers can make it into a bigger deal than it needs to be. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the example that you give there of a parking space is great because I do appreciate that in central London or in any city, access to parking spaces may be extremely limited. But for the number of individuals who may have that particular need, such as yourself, will also be extremely limited. So I think employers need to not worry that they are setting a precedent that for every disabled person, they have to provide a parking space because it really may not be relevant to the next disabled person. Agreed. Um, yeah, yeah and I also think possibly thinking about the changes that the pandemic in itself has brought about, which is that, you know, more people working remotely, for example, which has been a change that's potentially been quite beneficial for a lot of people that might have certain disabilities, not having to get in and out um, as much, but it's been applied across the board. So, so things have become... Um, slightly simpler and I guess people have had um, an opportunity to be 
to get more support mm-hmm. um, in terms of the kind of technological equipment that's available as well. So, I mean, we're doing this across Zoom and we're all in three different places. <laughs> so, you know, that gets across that, that, that sort of barrier. But those are things for, um, I think, senior management and employers to think about. And I think, um, Hasnara, um, one of the points that you made that's quite interesting is this, you know, the point of dialogue. And I think it does take some um, self-advocacy and maybe a little bit of confidence of the, the individual affected to be able Absolutely. to have think about what it is that they think their needs are and how that can be met. Um, and then it's for the employer to engage with that. Um, and if not, you know, what alternatives there might be. Yep. And it's interesting you should say that because in the career coaching work that I do, a lot of disabled candidates ask me, at what point do I disclose? at application stage, at assessment center stage, or when I've got the offer. And I was very much of the school of thought, don't disclose until the very last minute. So I remember rocking up to interviews and hovering about in um, law firm receptions, thinking if I sat down in the law low chair, which is what you normally find in a law firm reception, I won't actually ever be able to get up and I'd have to get my interviewer to lift me out of the seat, so to speak. So it was really ironic that, you know, here I am trying to hide it, but then it was becoming a barrier for me to feel relaxed and comfortable in my own skin. Um, So I can see that it is a real sort of catch 22, at what point do you disclose? But for me, the link later situation, interestingly, was forced because the partner interviewing me happened to know what rheumatoid arthritis was because her husband at the time was an orthopedic surgeon so i had to fess up and i'm so glad that they encouraged me to fess up because i don't know whether i would have said much about it so now my advice to any individuals with disabilities considering sort of changing jobs or actively looking for a job it's if you can turn your disability into a positive which is what I do now, then I think the sooner you disclose, the better. Because as you say, Wanu, the you have to take some level of responsibility as the individual with a disability to not make the other person feel awkward discussing this sort of stuff. That's such a fantastic example. Employers should be, if they want to encourage employees and candidates who are coming to interview with them, to speak openly about their disabilities. Employers will want to create an atmosphere, a culture within their organisation where speaking out about disabilities is the norm and that it's not anything to which stigma might be attached. Having role models who will talk about their disabilities, obviously, you know, if they are comfortable, but at all levels of the organisation and in all jobs. At the moment, we are just talking about Fianna's in law you've got a support staff as well so having that level of openness to encourage people to understand what it means to have a particular disability and how the employer may have helped that person will help people think that it's okay to discuss it and raise it if somebody's invited to an interview for example the employer should be asking as a matter of course whether there's any adjustments that they may require due to the disability in order to attend the interview whether it's a remote interview or not that should be par for the course. But I think raising awareness through people just discussing it and having role models is a really good way for the employer to encourage people to again feel comfortable 
in raising any concerns or queries that they've got. And um, one point just to touch on, Emma, is just mm. the general legal framework that's out there. I know you sort of mentioned that obviously there's the Equality Act, which deals with um, discrimination and, and preventing discrimination against people with certain um, protected characteristics, including disabilities. Um, but that also contains sort of positive framework dealing with things like reasonable adjustments, as you've mentioned, um, but also positive action to try and ensure that you, you increase um, the diversity of people within your organisation if they are underrepresented. Um, and I think some employers may be quite scared of that, but it, it is a tool there for them to use uh, to ensure that these conversations, not only are the conversations happening, but the, the action that follows up is happening as well, um, whereby you are encouraging more people to apply. Once they're in the business, you're giving them the support to uh, develop and to be promoted as well, because it doesn't just stop on the, you know, at the door, so to speak. It, it, it goes all the way up in that person's career. And um, Husnara, just to bring, bring you in there actually, and how you think, you know, law firm leaders could actually help to make the profession more accessible for people with disabilities, um, given that it can be quite a difficult profession, the, you know, the legal profession and how that worked um, for you and the choices that you were, you know, eventually made to transition out of the... Yeah, without uh, sounding like a broken record, it really is about having those conversations. And I think that firms more than ever before are embracing mentoring, um, support networks or you know employee networks you know whether that's to do with race ethnicity lgbtq etc and i think for me i would have really benefited from having a mentor of sorts because one thing and i think both of you will relate to this the way the legal profession is sold to students and what it's like actually being a lawyer working in a commercial environment are really quite different and i hadn't fully appreciated just how fast paced the work is, how long the hours are. I think there is more dialogue generally about this sort of stuff now. But for me, the reason I decided to go down the law route was I thought, well, I have a physical disability, so I need to really do a desk-based job. So law felt like a good option for me because I thought, oh, you know, God gave me a brain. I can just sit at my desk, draft letters, documents, etc. But it's physically quite a demanding job. And where the mentoring would have helped me is trying to navigate qualification because I ended up joining the corporate team during the dot-com boom. Apologies for showing my age. And for those of you who don't remember that, it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, and on reflection, I'm wondering whether if I hadn't opted to go down the transactional route, I would have ended up sticking with law for longer because the two things are really difficult to reconcile. You know, the demanding nature of being a transactional lawyer in the city versus managing and living with a chronic illness. Just picking up on Wanu's point regarding positive action, it is quite often something which isn't well understood by employers. It's not the same as positive discrimination which is unlawful. Actually, when we're talking about positive action in relation to a disability, it can quite often overlap with the reasonable adjustment obligation on employers. And one thing I should probably just mention is that the reasonable adjustment obligation kicks in where the employer 
is aware that there is a disability or reasonably aware that there is a disability. So the employer may, from the information that they have before them, conclude that it's likely that an individual is disabled for the purposes of the Equality Act. It's a measure which the employer can choose to take, provided it's a proportionate measure to overcome a disadvantage or meet a specific need and or combat an underrepresentation of people with particular characteristics in the workplace. So if we go back to talking about the parking space, somebody might say, well, that's most favourable treatment being given to somebody with a disability and consider that it is positive discrimination, which, as I've said already, is unlawful. Whereas actually all that Linklaters were doing was assisting you in overcoming a specific need that you had, which in itself was positive action and or a reasonable adjustment. But positive action in general gives the employer the right to take steps which can increase participation in a particular activity by people with disabilities, something that an employer can choose to do. They consider that persons with disabilities are not represented in the same way that others are within their organisation. For example, the employer could reserve places on a training course for people with disabilities in order to guarantee that maybe 25% of their training opportunities are available to people with disabilities. That's positive action if the employer has a reasonable belief that there is an underrepresentation of people with disabilities in their training. It's just an example, so employers can dip their toe in or out of positive action, but it's something certainly to bear in mind. Absolutely. Um, so I think we are going to round up, but just before we get to the end, um, Pistar, I've got a last question for you. So you recently wrote an article it was a letter to your younger self, which details some of the sort of successes that you've went on to achieve in your life. Um, one of them being awarded the Blue Peter Green Badge Award for organising the um, aluminium tin can recycling campaign <laughs> at your local park, um, which is, sounds brilliant. Um, do you have any advice or tips for um, aspiring lawyers who are entering the legal profession and who may have a, a, a disability? Firstly, you know, I think you don't listen to your inner critic because those self-limiting beliefs, I'm sure, will tell you that you can't do it. Similarly, don't listen to people who are a negative influence on your life because there will be people, despite laws protecting us now, that will tell you that you're not good enough or why would you want to do that because you're disabled. No one with a disability can get into law. So just try to filter out those sorts of comments and your own self-limiting beliefs and really go for it. But it's important to be realistic as well, because as I've highlighted, working in a city law firm, especially, can be pretty demanding. But I think now, with the sort of, you know, one of the positive byproducts of COVID-19 and the pandemic and the you know, prevalence of hybrid working, that to me is a game changer in terms of, you know, helping people with disabilities that affect perhaps their energy levels or where they're in pain to be able to work just as well as their non-disabled colleagues. So I think we're now living in a much more inclusive world, I'd like to think, and anything's possible. And with that, 
last inspiring note. Thank you so much, Asnara, for joining us today. Um, thank you, Emma. Um, we hope you've enjoyed that podcast. Um, and for any more information on this topic and many more, you can go to our website, which is www.cm-mari.com.